We are going to start today's session with a conversation with Eric Benamou, founder and general partner of Benamou Global Ventures. Eric is a longtime friend of mine and he's been here before. And uh, I've watched how he has built Benamou Global Ventures from the ground up. Eric, welcome back to the show and uh, we look forward to catching up. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me back. So let's um, let's level set on where are you, um, you know, in terms of the fund. Where what fund are you on? What's the size of the fund, and what's the fund strategy now? Well, um, there's more than one fund now. We have four active funds, and uh, two of them are fully invested. Uh, the last one is still uh, in the midst of being raised. We're about two thirds of the way. And in total, we have approximately 300 to $350 million in the management. Mm -hmm. And uh, because we have uh, LPs around the world and a lot of relationships to manage, uh, for the first time, we, we have to formalize our investor relations program because uh, we've got to keep in touch with all these investors. And they're not all the same. So we have. Uh, an investor relations uh, small group inside BGV to help us uh, continue the growth. But that's basically uh, approximately the size of, uh, of the firm. And uh, we don't expect it to be much bigger than this because uh, if we cross a certain threshold, the nature of what we do would fundamentally change. So we think we're optimally uh, sized. And uh, the, the focus of the firm has not changed. Uh, we've added a few nuances along the way, but, but basically we we focus on uh, young companies, and I'll, I'll refine this later, uh, companies who are basically driving the digital transformation of enterprises around the world. And that's, uh, that's true across all vertical sectors. And more specifically, what we focus on today in our fund four <clears throat> is what we call enterprise 4.0 companies. These are a little different uh, from the companies uh, that we would have considered, say, a decade ago. All enterprise 4.2 companies uh, have AI at the core. They leverage new data sets. They tend to be solutions-oriented as opposed to components-oriented. They typically <clears throat> deploy solutions in the form of uh, intelligent, automated workflows that fundamentally disrupt and improve the economics of uh, the vertical sector. And these solutions tend to be adopted uh, not centrally, but uh, in, uh, in business units, in divisions, in plants. And that makes them more attractive from a VC perspective because the decision-making process is uh, easier to deal with, it is faster, and it is more conducive to generating uh, venture returns. And okay. we found that uh, these companies exist uh, around the world. And I think that you wanted to, to explore geography as well. But uh, let me just add this, uh, this important nuance. These companies are not born in Silicon Valley. These companies are born in geographies thousands of miles away from here. They inevitably have to come to Silicon Valley because there is a stage of growth where the, the relationships you weave in Silicon Valley are, are essential. And we tried to intercept them in that uh, in that journey. Um, so while they have the nexus in their geography of origin, and we can explore this uh, in, in more deeply, 
they end up looking like global companies uh, with a, a Silicon Valley face very quickly. So that's basically what BGV is about today. Right. So um, let's double click on, on a few different points. Maureen, there is a, uh, there's a, a noise some, of some kind that I haven't heard before. I don't know where it's coming from. Um, but in any case, it's a bit annoying. Anyway, so um, Eric, let's talk about check sizes. Uh, where are you looking to come in? What level of validation needs to exist before you're willing to write those checks and, and what size checks are you interested in writing? Well, I'll describe the sweet spot and then the, the variations around that. A sweet spot of intersecting companies is when, when they have their first product out in the hands of customers. They may or may not be paying customers yet, <clears throat> but they're engaged enough that we can we can verify early stages, early signs of product market fit. So uh, our mandate is not to take huge technology risks. We want to make sure technology is fundamentally working. We're prepared to underwrite all the other risks, such as uh, market, company building, and, and so on. But in, but in general, <clears throat> These are what you would call Series C plus or Series A companies. That's roughly the, the stage that in which we invest. Uh, and when we do that, we typically uh, in lead with a, a three to five million dollar check. Uh, and uh, but sometimes we go upstream and we intercept companies even before they have their first products out, either because we. <clears throat> We're really convinced about what they're doing, or we know the entrepreneurial team. Uh, there are reasons for us to mitigate that, that risk of going upstream. And when we do that, uh, we typically start with a $250,000 check. And uh, all in, when we stay with companies all the way through, we end up investing 15 to 20 million. Okay. So uh, we, we don't drop companies when we get to a, a growth stage, we, we stay with them. Uh, and we stay with them all the way to an exit point. Mm -hmm. So, as we describe ourselves as early stage, because that's fundamentally very different from what so growth stage or expansion stage firms uh, do. Uh, okay. So, anyway. So, um, another question along those lines I have is, um, when you're doing AI, um, Typically, there is machine learning involved and there is large data sets involved. What are you seeing in your portfolio or in your deal flow of how entrepreneurs are accessing that data? You're talking about taking the technology risk out. Well, you kind of need to have data to be able to take the technology risk out in AI companies. What, what are the best practices you are observing in your orbit? Well, it, it is rare that, uh, that young companies have access to a vast proprietary data sets. Right. However, they could make this semi-proprietary by having unique curation methods and having a unique way of uh, optimizing the algorithm to process that data. Let, let me give you an example. We, we recently invested in a, in a company originally born in India called uh, AI Dash, and uh, they focus on processing satellites 
data imagery. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> uh, so, and there's so much more of it today than even five years ago because uh, we keep launching satellites by the dozens per day. So there's an enormous amount of data available of high quality, which can be analyzed for a very specific purpose. And in their case, they use it to, to help companies like PG&E manage their, their physical assets. Uh, by, by analyzing this, this data, they're able to detect whether um, a shrub or a tree is going to interfere with a, with a power line or a distribution center. And they're able to, to basically optimize for this use case all the way to the point of uh, automating the workflow of dispatching the truck to go uh, clear the, the, the overgrowth of, uh, of shrubbery. So, okay. so, so that's an example of data that's uh, some, some of it is publicly available. Some of it is available on license. However, the way you treat this data for this specific purpose is unique to AI Dash. And, and the way you incorporate this into a, a workflow is unique to what, what the you and the customer group that they cater to. And yeah. that's very typical of, a, of a enterprise 4.0 companies. Okay. And um, am I picking up right that you are only focused on the enterprise, not on small business focused uh, company, uh, businesses? Initially, yes. It's, however, what, what happens is sometimes uh, companies who are successful in large enterprises are able to evolve the offering to be totally uh, PLG, so product-led growth, and, and go downstream or down markets and uh, make their offering suitable for small, medium-sized businesses. So this happens fairly often. But the point of entry, the point of validation is the large enterprise. We believe that they're the ones who who are confronted with the most difficult problems, and this is where you can erect the strongest uh, barriers of entry and technology modes. Good. All right. So, uh, Eric, you must have uh, read the articles that I have written recently about the past trends that is picking up. Actually, even one one year ago, I think it was less prominent. Now it's more prominent, and I've had conversations with a lot of players who have either lots of integrations, API integrations into their platforms. And these are slightly larger companies, obviously. Um, and in some cases, there are companies who have 25,000, 35,000, 45,000 uh, developers, and they're really trying to build out that, you know, salesforce.com fast strategy. Uh, and, and I think this thinking is quite, is, is becoming a lot wider spread than I, I had them two years ago. Um, I had, you know, kind of seen this coming. I may have talked talk to you about it, and I've seen this coming. It is picking up. That trend is definitely building. Uh, what is your analysis of this trend, and how how does your fund see this trend, and how do you want to play in it? Um, yeah, you, you are completely right about having. Uh, Having described this trend as a very exciting trend, it's uh, it's very important, uh, and and I think it reflects the fact that today to to roll out uh, applications that make a meaningful difference in the life of uh, either consumers or enterprises, you have to optimize stacks. And the way to to manage uh, stack optimization is to have a platform-like approach with a rich tool sets. Um, so we this is completely within the scope of what we do. Enterprise 4.2 companies come 
in the form of uh, past um, past companies with rich tool sets. An example of this would be uh, uh, one of our larger companies is uh, platform.sh. It's a French board company, but uh, it has it has offices in uh, half a dozen different countries. And what they do is that they optimize, they help companies optimize and manage fleets of websites. Uh, sometimes we mistakenly think that a website is a unique thing, but in reality, large enterprises have hundreds, if not thousands of websites yeah. uh, that cater to uh, uh, different customer groups, partners, and, and so on. And to manage this in a consistent way, it require a unique tool set. You cannot manage these, these sites one at a time. So Platform does this uh, in a very, very effective way for extremely large uh, enterprises. And, and they do this by, by basically optimizing uh, a stack that's unique to the, the way uh, you build and run websites. Uh, and that's an example of uh, us capitalizing on the past trend. More recently, you covered platform.sh a while ago at the time. Uh, obviously, this trend was not, this is, it must have been three, four years ago. So uh, I haven't talked to them since. So it's, it's good to hear that thinking in this direction. Uh, I'll uh, look into that more closely and see what uh, additional coverage that deserves. But uh, please go ahead. You were going to give us another example. Uh, yeah, a, a more recent example. In fact, there was a an investment that was announced just last week. Uh, it's a young company called Evinced. Evinced, uh, like the like the the word the adjective Evinced, uh, E V I N C E D, and they focus on uh, a, an important emerging problem called digital accessibility. So again, we talked about websites. Well, websites have to be digitally accessible by everybody, even people with a physical impairment. It, it turns out that, uh, that even if you have no physical impairments, many websites are not truly digital accessible, meaning that uh, oftentimes there are fields that you cannot click on, or there are, there are descriptions in uh, extremely small font size or illegible font size. So there's a lot of uh, UI UX problems which impair digital accessibility for everybody, in particular for people who have uh, physical impairments. And because uh, we were proliferating applications, you cannot solve for these problems by having vast armies of QA engineers all over the world to, to check all these different versions being put out every day. Yeah. You have to have a tool set that automates the identification of these problems and the remediation of these problems. And that's what they do. Okay. So, and, uh, and, of course, they leverage AI in, in a way that's, uh, that fits uh, the model that I described before. And they're and this is, uh, and they have a, uh, basically a tool set and a stack that today is initially used by QA engineers downstream. But over a period of time, maybe two, two or three years, it'll be used by DevOps engineers at application creation time. Okay. So it will shift left towards the upstream developments. And that's an example of a past optimized for a very specialized problem. Mm -hmm. And um, how do you see uh, this, you know, trend or this structure of company building 
evolving. Like, you know, in the case of Salesforce.com, we saw two things, right? We saw Salesforce.com itself becoming a gigantic success story with really a force multiplier effect on its valuation and so on. And then we also saw really great companies being built on Salesforce.com that in their own rights became very successful companies. Viva being one of my favorite examples. Um, you know, I've known the CEO of Viva for a long time. And they really built that company for $4 million, you know. They raised more money, but then they never really used it. They probably delivered $600 million worth of revenue with just $4 million in investment. Um, so it does if you you know play it right and if you have a good marketplace, if you choose a good pass which has a good marketplace, you can actually get very far, very little investment. How do you see that angle developing? Well, uh, you're right. So companies like Salesforce.com have created a vast ecosystem that makes it possible for a new generation of companies to, to live within it. Um, and uh, we certainly view this as, as an opportunity because, uh, you know, we build value by, by stack levels. And uh, if you come into an environment that already has a, a fully deployed Salesforce.com CRM system, you can take advantage of all the capabilities and APIs that's already exposed to create different kinds of value. Yeah. By the way, uh, Salesforce.com, for all its successes, does not do everything perfectly. So there's a lot of territory that's been under that's opportunity for entrepreneurs. You're seeing all kinds of things. The company that I recently sent you is one of those gaps that uh, exists in the Salesforce.com. Yeah, and we met them uh, just a couple of days ago. And yeah. another example there is that Salesforce.com does not do a very good job of uh, mobile engagements. Mm -hmm. Yet, uh, despite the pandemic, uh, we still we're still living in a world that's increasingly more mobile. So you have to be able to, to capitalize on uh, on mobile engagement opportunities uh, every, all the time. And uh, there the are many things which are um, architecturally limiting in Salesforce are prevented from doing doing a great job there. And that's a space which is available for. For younger companies uh, who have uh, who don't have the architectural baggage of Salesforce. Mm -hmm. So, um, from a fund strategy point of view, you would consider investing in also in companies that build on somebody else's stack or somebody else's path. Yeah, absolutely, and it's uh, a great example of this. As a category, is uh, Martech tools. Yes. There's so it's it's a uh, of course it's, it's some people say it's an overfunded space because there have been eight or nine thousand companies funded there but on the other hand we have such an insatiable appetite for improving digital engagement tools uh, tools yeah. that help us better understand uh, customer journeys in a in the digital world that uh, we consume these tools at some point uh, we're gonna have to to do some uh, rolling up and rationalization of these tools in, in coherent tool sets. Yeah. And this, this is creating opportunities in its own right. But all of these tools, to, to your point, uh, build on existing marketing stack layers. Yeah. Uh, whether it's uh, Adobe, Marketo, and so there's a whole bunch of uh, stacks available. 
and uh, and and did create uh, a different way of solving a very important digital problem that leverages existing stack deployments. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right. Um, now, what? As you look around, you you have your deal flow, you have your portfolio, you watch the broader trends. What are some things that you are looking for? Like you see something going on trend-wise, and you want some want to invest in in that category or in that general trend. Are there nuggets that you could offer uh, with more specific directions? Well, it, there's really a lot, and and, and frankly, um, I, I'm very optimistic about our industry right now. When I say our industry. Uh, I don't mean all of venture capital. As we discussed before, we we focus on uh, on early stage. Um, and one trend which uh, accelerated in 2020, partly as a result of the pandemic, is that uh, most of our peers started to deploy more of their capital downstream, mm -hmm. meaning the expansion and growth stage and, and later. And uh, even though it was a record year, in terms of uh, amount of venture capital invested, much more of it was invested downstream and much less of it as a percentage was invested in uh, seed, series C plus, series A. So it, it, uh, it makes this environment where we play less competitive in the sense of uh, there's, there's much less chances of uh, valuation inflation. And in fact, uh, We've seen valuation inflation in Series C, D plus companies, but not at Series C and C plus. If, if anything, Series C valuations have uh, have tapered down a little bit in the last uh, two or three quarters. So it's a very benign environment for us, and we want to take advantage of it. So that's that's more of a of a capital deployment trend, uh, which I, I'm referring to. But in terms of uh, of uh, opportunities uh, in yen markets. Uh, you find them literally across the board of uh, vertical sectors. I'll, I'll give you one which at first looks a bit far-fetched. Um, waste recycling, waste management. Yeah. I don't think it's of waste management as, as, as something fertile for, for uh, technology disruption. But in fact, it, it is. And I, I, I did not suspect that uh, up until a year ago. But then uh, I started to, to look into this more closely. First of all, there's a societal trend that um, we generate more and more waste. This is uh, this is one of the attributes of consumer societies. But at the same time, we have less and less tolerance for um, for poorly managed waste. We want to, as part of our climate change and climate control policies, we want to do a better job of recycling waste. And uh, up until recently, waste management was really done exactly the same way as 30 years ago. So you would have big trucks collecting garbage from uh, houses, uh, office building, and so on, taking them to waste recycling facilities where you would have uh, it would be dumped on uh, on uh, treadmill-like structures, and you have people with goggles and gloves sorting out the waste and putting uh, the, aluminum, the aluminum cans in a big bin and uh, the milk jugs in a different bin 
and then sending this off to uh, to uh, to be resold um, uh, as recycled material. So this is a, this is begging for disruption. Yeah, it's a robotics problem. Yeah, it's a robotics machine vision problem, control uh, analytics. Uh, but basically, um, every neighborhood has a waste profile. And this waste profile can be used to train an AI engine to recognize all of these, all of these objects. And robots can pick these objects much more safely and faster than human beings. And uh, and they can be recycled in in ways which are much much higher quality of material basically. So this this is an example of a of a complete solution taking advantage of AI new data sets, which is basically collected by machine vision cameras, and resulting in a much improved workflow. So it hits all of the aspects of enterprise four point two companies. And not only that, but it produces cash on cash returns, which are unbeatable. So, so you have, uh, and you can deploy this in one recycling center without having to uh, get uh, clearance from the, the chief technology officer of the entire of the entire company. So, yeah. so you have a lot of the, the attributes to look for in uh, in an enterprise for point of start. And this is something you have invested in already. Yeah, we have invested in a company that's that's in this space. Uh, there's been a few other big investments made by, by other firms there because it's uh, the space is just begging for for disruptive yeah, solutions. Sure, sure, yeah, okay, very good, very good. And um, you know, one other trend that I will um, share with you, and then we'll move on to listening to entrepreneurs. Um, you know, we picked this up a while ago. And again, this trend has built up more and especially I think in COVID it has moved up significantly. It's this bootstrapping with a paycheck trend. People are starting side businesses and doing side businesses, validating side uh, businesses and, you know, coming into full-time entrepreneurship later in the cycle. Um, I don't know if you're seeing this in your deal flow, but we are certainly seeing this in our community a lot. Yeah, we've not seen this as much. Um, and sometimes we're, we're a bit mistrustful of, uh, of these businesses, because uh, if, if, if a young business or if a small business has lived on at small scale for a long time, we have a bit of, we have some doubts about the entrepreneurs fundamental drive to build an impactful business and for us we, we have a, we have a mandate from our own investors we, we need to generate venture returns and you cannot generate venture returns without scale so a business which has operated in a, say million dollar revenue range for five years which all of a sudden now claims to to want to grow at 100 percent a year is possible we love this but we're going to be we're going to scrutinize this uh, very closely because it's not just a, a question of opportunity; it's a question of desire and drive. Well, I don't think that's the profile of the companies that I'm talking about. Um, for example, you know, get in enterprise, especially getting meetings with people to validate your idea already takes several months. 
so you know what that validation phase of getting the right meetings and talking to the right people to get validation on your idea to even scope out the product and so forth is a you know multi uh, i would say 9 12 18 month process and during that period there is not huge upside in quitting your job and cutting off your source of income for most people. So I think people are coming to realize that. And um, I think it, especially in enterprise, this is a very important trend to note that um, you, know, you can actually fund your seed stage with your paycheck and, and, and get to validation before you quit your job. Yeah, you, you, you're right, Sramana. These these profiles exist and uh, you love them. What I was reacting to more of people who've had a lifestyle business for many years who now pretend to be entrepreneurs because it's fashionable. And uh, so, so we have to, to we have to separate out the, the, these two flows. But uh, um, you're right; it, it happens very often that uh, an entrepreneur has a, a great idea, but it takes. It takes more than a year to get any kind of uh, seed capital to, 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 to put the idea into at least prototype form. So we typically, we, we don't have the resources to scout for, for these sort of entrepreneurs because, uh, well, there's only, only so many so many people in, in our firm. We try to operate one or two, two levels downstream from there. Yes, I know. But but as you know, we, we have uh, we've made an effort to, to scout for these entrepreneurs in, in India through our our incubator, uh, Arca, uh, which has identified uh, close to 30 such companies in the last three years. And we think there's going to be ma many more in the next in the next three years. So we're yeah, trying yeah. to catch them one level early, earlier. And then as they get to a certain level, that's, uh, they, they fall into a, a field of vision. And then we can we can pick them up here at, at, at BGV and, uh, and hopefully lead a, a Series A uh, round or something like that. Yeah. 